Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I am so excited to be in New York right now as you're listening to this on the 7th of October, a Tuesday. Uh, I'm doing all kinds of live Nerdist Writers panels this week, uh, and they're really cool, and I hope you will join us for them. There are still tickets to a lot of them. Um, Tomorrow night, October 8th, 6 p.m. I know 6 p.m. is weird on a Wednesday, but let's do it anyway, because I've got uh, a Nerdist Comics panel with my co-host, Heath Corson. We've got Charles Sewell, who's writing The Death of Wolverine. He's writing She-Hulk. He's writing Swamp Thing. He's writing... Everything, um, and just signed exclusive with Marvel, which is pretty neat. Uh, we'll talk about that. And then Jerry Duggan, who is doing an incredible job on Deadpool lately. He's also writing uh, Batman Arkham Manor, which looks like an amazing book. Uh, that's tomorrow night at 6 p.m. at Rock Bar in New York. Um, those guys are going to bring some variant cover editions of their book, some rare variants, uh, to give away if you come to that panel uh, and again, that's tomorrow at Rock Bar. You can find a link for tickets at facebook.com slash panel or at the website thrillingadventurehour.com. Uh, on Thursday, October 9th at 7 p.m. in Soho at the Housing Works Bookstore, we've got Danny Strong, who is writing the uh, Hunger Games Mockingjay uh, one, parts one and two adaptations. Uh, Danny also wrote Recount, and he was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, he was one of the, the trio, one of those evil dudes. Uh, so we'll talk about all that stuff. It should be really fun. Danny's a great guy. He's done Thrilling Adventure Hour a bunch of times. Uh, we also have comics writer Alice Cott, who is writing Secret Avengers, which is one of the best books uh, uh, Marvel is putting out right now. Uh, again, find a link for tickets at facebook.com slash panel or thrillingadventurehour.com. And then finally, on Friday, October 10th, 6 p.m., again at Rock Bar, We've got Brian Michael Bendis. I don't need to tell you all the things he's done, but they include Powers, Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, all-new X-Men, uh, just a ton of cool stuff. He also wrote this book called Words for Pictures, The Art and Business of Writing Comics, which kind of does for comics what we do with the Nerdist Writers panel. So come see me and Bendis uh, and co-host Heath Corson on Friday at 6 p.m. Uh, again, facebook.com slash panel for tickets. We've also got a couple of writers' panels as part of New York Comic Con, so if you're a badge holder, you can come to those. On Friday, October 10th at 4 p.m., we'll be talking with Brian K. Vaughn. Very excited about that. Brian, of course, wrote Why the Last Man, and he's working on the phenomenal Saga series, uh, which I hope, I'm sure, you guys are checking out. And then on Saturday, October 11th at 1 p.m., I'm sitting down with G. Willow Wilson, who is the co-creator of Ms. Marvel for Marvel. Uh, again, another great book. You've heard me talking about it if you listen to the podcast. Uh, as well as Greg Pack, who's doing some great work for both Marvel and DC. So come join us at uh, 1 o'clock, uh, me and Heath again, uh, on Saturday, October 11th. And you need to be a badge holder for that one. Finally, on Sunday, the big Thrilling Adventure Hour panel uh, is happening with all of the Wart Juice players. It's at 11.15 uh, in... 1A06, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We have some big announcements to make uh, that uh, you guys are going to want to hear about as uh, appreciators of things that I also appreciate. You'll understand when you hear it. So come on down to the Thrilling Adventure Hour panel. We're going to follow that with a signing and a big photo thing, and it's going to be a lot of fun. 
Hope to see you in New York. Um, there's another podcast that you should know about here on the Nerdist Network called The Sleepy Cast. It's the official Sleepy Hollow podcast. Uh, the host of it, Clark Wolf, talks to writers, producers, showrunners, all the people behind Fox's Sleepy Hollow, the show you know and love. Um, it's super fun. It's like this, but it's only about one show. Uh, so check out Sleepy Cast here on Nerdist Network, the official Sleepy Hollow podcast. This is not an advertisement. I'm genuinely requesting that you listen to that. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel series. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, and let me know who you'd like to see on this series. I'm always looking for new ideas for TV show, movies, books, comics, anyone you like who writes things. Do me a favor, though, and check the archive to see if we've already had that person on whom you would like to hear from. Uh, I am a television writer. I've written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently on the Netflix uh, DreamWorks show Puss in Boots. Uh, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage production in the style of old-time radio, which is a weekly podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For more information, visit thrillingadventurehour.com. Sam Shaw is here. We're talking about Manhattan, and I was just telling him how much I love it. Um, uh, it is so, I mean, look, nice. Thank you. it looks beautiful. That was no surprise. Uh, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised by the depth and ambition of it. But, you know, it, I guess it's because we don't know the network. There's no pedigree there. Right. So it was a real wild card. Right. Um, has everyone been telling you as effusively as I am how great this show is? Uh, you know, um, well, uh, it's very lovely of you to say that, and I'm really proud of it. And um, we've, we've had a great response. It was okay. incredibly gratifying because there's so much um, hard work that so many people invest into a show to make it uh, – to, even to make it a bad show and then to make a show that <laughs> yeah. you're reasonably proud of. I mean, it's, it's like backbreaking crazy work. Um, but, uh, you know, but it, it's um, – there's so much great TV – Right now, this is, uh, you know, obviously I'm not the first, I'm like the 10,000th person to say this is sort of a golden moment for TV. Mm -hmm. But, um, but so it's, it, it, it is always a challenge to, to find an audience, particularly when you're on a new network. So it's, yeah. it's really exciting that, that how, people have responded so well. How did the show wind up at WGN? Uh, so I, I wrote the first draft of the first episode of our show many years ago, five years ago or six years ago. Um, and there was a sort of long, evolution uh, as it became the thing that it is now and I worked on other projects and other shows and uh, about two years ago partnered up with our uh, executive producer director kind of my partner in crime mm -hmm. Tommy Shlami uh, and then we sort of um, got partnered up with Lionsgate and Skydance and, and we went and talked to a bunch of networks uh, and it was a really interesting process because uh, the show's a really hard sale in yeah. some ways um, you know, this is a bunch of really, really great period storytelling on TV right now. The period is so hard to do ever well, yeah. and particularly on TV and on a cable budget. And um, so, uh, so we were aware that that we sort of um, had a, a, a our job cut out for us. Um, and we um, talked to a bunch of networks and had great meetings with a bunch of them, and actually got pretty close to the altar 
with another network that shall be unnamed mm-hmm. when we sat down with the guys at WGN. But a they, network that we know and we know that a kind of prestige series would live on, I imagine. Yeah, it's, in some ways it's a network that, that would have been um, a more obvious sure. home for a show like this yeah. um, you know, versus WGN, which, to be perfectly honest, I, you know, I didn't know anything about it. I still don't know. What, are they a game show network? What is that? <laughs> well, here's the crazy thing about WGN. WGN is an acronym. Are you aware of what WGN stands for? Because I'm about to I blow your mind not. into a million tiny pieces. Ready? It is a TV network. WGN stands for World's Greatest Newspaper. What? Which is very surpri- it's surprising. That really is surprising. surprising. Where? So it's owned by the Tribune Company. Oh, okay. um, And it's you know, based out of Chicago. Uh, and there was a uh, radio uh, network for a long time. Mm-hmm. It actually aired, uh, if you look on Wikipedia uh, and read about the history of soap operas, like what is uh, often thought of as the first soap opera ran on WGN Radio. Yes, no, now that you say it, obviously I know it was a radio network. Yeah, and many and sports fans know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because uh, they run Cubs games. Yes, so, you know, But I'm so like a sense. pencil-necked you know, nerd from <laughs> Brooklyn, and so I don't know uh, practically what sport the Cubs play. So, <laughs> right. so I, you know, I, I didn't um, have like a long relationship with WGN, the network. Um, uh, you know, but they were just the latest of a series of networks to make this foray into original programming. You know, mm-hmm. obviously HBO did it quite a while ago, and then FX sure. kind of blazed new ground, and then AMC. And so, you know, there was a chance for us to um, to be among the first uh, offerings for a new network, and and uh, they gave us this kind of great chance that you don't get very often, mm-hmm. which is not to make a pilot, which yeah. uh, you know often has its own. Um, uh, there are a lot of hazards to making a pilot because mm-hmm. it's sort of a sales tool. And so often pilots are these kind of gaudy narrative mega mansions um, that have like lots of gables and ornamental finials on the, you know, but like, uh, you know, within a few weeks, the paint starts, you know, peeling off the walls and the yeah. things don't work. Um, so instead, you know, we got to really take time to build the show and build it from the ground up and take that's our just, time. That's so cool. That's uh, so unbelievable. Um, and I want to talk about that process. But first, um, so you've been living with this script for some time. Yes. This is clearly a, a story that you're passionate about. It was. It is. Um, what, what, were, what was sort of the discovery process for you of this story? How did, how, where did it come from in the first place? But then how did you kind of figure out what this first season of the series would be? Yeah, so... Um it, uh, I, I don't recommend this creative process to anyone else because it began as a totally different show. It actually began as an idea for a feature that I wanted to write. <laughs> it was set in the present day about the war on terror. Um, my dad has very little uh, to do with the show that we wound up writing, except thematically. Mm-hmm. My dad um, was a criminal defense lawyer for mm-hmm. many, many years. And when he retired... Um, because he was not a guy who was going to like learn to golf or something, he he took on a bunch of pro bono clients so he could sort of keep a foot in uh, mm-hmm. the lawyering game. And some of those were uh, Yemeni detainees at Guantanamo, uh, oh, which was just this, it, the, it, there's a kind of whole other fascinating story to be told about that work and and yeah. what it entails. And but for me, the interesting thing was that there was a huge amount that he couldn't tell me about the work that he was doing because he was trading in issues of national security and military mm-hmm. secrecy. And, um, so that was the birth of an idea that just had to do with secret work and, mm-hmm. and what, um, what the personal implications are of being involved in secret work and being cut off from the people you're closest to. Um, that's, that's funny, though, because, like, and that's an, an amazing kernel to build this from, but, like, someone else would go off and say, okay, 
dad's a spy, and here's the series. Yes. This is a very yes. different uh, animal. Well, yeah. I mean, I got very, very scared about the, that subject matter really quickly because mm-hmm. it's so hard to write a story um, about like a subject matter like that without um, adjudicating or making a political point. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I certainly don't have the political perspective right now on any of that stuff. So, but, um, but along the way, I began to read a little bit about the Manhattan Project. And um, what was crazy to me, um, I, I mean, it, it's, it's obviously a really important moment in American history and world history, but it's also a really, really. Am I allowed to swear on this show? I don't. I don't know. Are it's children listening? Yeah, it's just a really fucking weird moment in American <laughs> history too. I mean, that was the f- the first thing um, that just like put a hook in me was that um, the history was so much stranger than I had ever imagined hmm. it could be. I mean, it, it, like it's it feels like the premise of a science fiction novel that you take all these uh, sort of uh, socially. Uh, odd geniuses and pluck yeah. them up from their lives and like corral them into this crazy <laughs> secret government city on a dead volcano somewhere and so um, and then have them like invent the end of the world it just seemed fascinating to me um, so uh, so yeah I, I very quickly became disinterested in Guantanamo <laughs> Bay and uh, right. and issues of um, of the war on terror the sort of contemporary issues and, mm-hmm. and spent more and more time just immersing myself in all the details of moment. And at what point did it start to become a series for you? I mean, because when you pitch that, like, that feels like Gilligan's Island. Like, that feels like it's, it's got It's totally legs, Gilligan's Island. You know? That's the thing. And actually, and we'll talk, we can talk about this in a bit, but one of the great um, gifts of this partnership with Tommy Schlamme is that really early on, he said, like, it is Gilligan's Island. And, we, and, we, <laughs> and like, we, you, we cannot shoot this on a stage. We have to build That's awesome. a Gilligan's Island. We have to build a real town that people can inhabit, which we did. But uh, And it, you can feel that in the show. Like, at that I'm so glad. It doesn't I mean, feel I like feel sets. That. It feels like a lived-in place. Yeah, it's, it's really, really odd thing. I think it's a huge <laughs> gift to the actors because they, oh, um, sure. you know, they, uh, it, it, like, the, nobody, um, you don't, like, yell cut and they, like, immediately are in some air-conditioned trailer. <laughs> like, you are in this dusty, odd 1943 land, you know. That's so bizarre. Um, but, uh... <laughs> but when it be- started to become a series rather oh, than yeah, this yeah. feature idea. Well, I think part of the deal was, for me, that, um... The story just came to feel bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm a real research nerd, and um, I have a capacity to go down rabbit holes. Um, but this proved to be a really, really deep one. Mm-hmm. And so the more I read, um, the more it felt like not one story or ten stories or a season's worth of stories, but um, a series' worth of stories. Or It just, it, it, it just um, continued to expand in a mm-hmm. kind of chain reaction so that became the thing it just uh, felt like a world i would love to inhabit for a very long time once you had the the world was there a character that hooked you from the start i mean was was frank the first one was it someone else and you found your lead how did that happen it felt to me i mean now i think of our show um really as an ensemble show and i think one of the strengths we're, we're just hitting a stride now in the season that i love and feel really proud of where it comes to feel like a big complicated machine with a lot of moving parts mm-hmm. and um, a lot of characters with very different interests um, uh, and points I will say let me just cut in yeah please the, on this most recent episode this this recording won't go out for a couple of weeks but this most recent episode had the the three supporting scientists and on his team yeah. getting high and it was a storyline that went nowhere but you got to live with these characters like 
it's the most ensembliest thing I've ever seen in such a fun way. Like that's what you want from creating an ensemble. Though I mean, the the incredible gift that we have with this cast is that ev- everyone is so fascinating and so brilliant. I mean, it's like the problem that we have is it's so hard to service all of those characters yeah. all the time. But like. Uh, for me, I could sit and watch you know, Michael <laughs> Jernis and and Harry Lloyd and Chris Denham uh, like goof around on drugs for a very long time before Absolutely. I get uh, bored of it. Uh, that's your half hour spinoff. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Three Yahoos got in. in <laughs> um, anyway, so we were talking um, about characters emerging yeah. for you. Yeah. So I mean, it really f- it, it, it initially it it felt like a story about two characters in particular. And, you know, it really began for me with uh, with Frank and Charlie, who are these mm-hmm. two physicists at the center of the show. Um, Tommy Schlamy, uh, he invokes a lot the old Western, the shootist, and, you know, the story of, this, you know, sort of grizzled gunslinger and the young gun. <laughs> um, not to call John Grizzled. He's a very dashing and handsome man. Uh, John Benjamin Hickey, our, our lead. But, um, but it felt like an opportunity to tell a story about a very complicated kind of mm. mentor and student relationship, yeah. too. You know, there's a incredible documentary about the Manhattan Project that um, if you haven't seen uh, I cannot uh, uh, endorse it strenuously enough it's on YouTube also it's called The Day After Trinity Um, it's nominated for an Academy Award by a a filmmaker named John Else and it it consists mostly of interviews with physicists and a few of their spouses many decades later talking about their work on the project and one thing that a lot of them talk about really poetically and eloquently is um, what they some of them call the trap of the science, which is this experience they had of sort of losing the broader perspective of what the human implications were of this thing that they were hmm. midwifing into the world. And so, uh, you know, there's a sort of standard old pilot trick, which is, you know, bring our new eyes into the world of our show in, in a first episode. Right. Um, but that wasn't just a, a sort of vehicle for exposition. For me, it, it felt very much like part of the story was a story about... Um, what kind of perspective you lose as you become immersed in um, in something that you're working on. And, and these two characters became a way of sort of um, moving back and forth and having them um, butt up against each other and, and bring different points of view about what they were doing. That is fascinating. And it's, it's interesting to hear that it's part of the DNA of the show. Uh, and I guess that was kind of my other, like, big question is, what is the show about for you? Like, even even... You know, knowing that the Guantanamo story is the yeah. jumping off point and you're taking yeah. it away from what could be current events and you don't want to create a polemic, but, you know, you're setting it in World War II. You're setting it among scientists. You're setting it among awkward people. There's a soap opera aspect to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It's potentially so loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're working with the room, mm-hmm. what are the things that you guys are tracking? What are the things that you guys are talking about? Well, uh Here's a way that I think about the show a little bit. Um, I haven't really talked about this in any context other than locked in a room with uh, the other pasty people who helped me make the show. Uh, those are the writers, not the very uh, suntan and handsome people who, who work outside of the writer's room. But, uh, you know, for me, it's a show that has um, a trick up its sleeve um, in that it presents itself as a story about a uh, subject matter that we're kind of familiar with and that has its own narrative tropes associated with it, mm-hmm. which is World War II. You know, we all, we've seen a lot of World War II stories. Um, but I actually don't, for me, I don't think this is really a World War II story at all. I think it's an origin story that's kind of about this other thing that happened afterward. It's about this moment when um, 
a different kind of America started to uh, invent itself. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, not to get too sort of lofty about it, but the more that I started to read about life at Los Alamos and the dawn of this atomic age, the more it came to feel like this sort of odd nexus of a huge number of um, very tangled threads that we're all still um, reckoning with now. Um, you know, forget just the political questions of, you know, like how much freedom you want to throw away in order to feel safe at night and sure. um, whether you want your government to be transparent, um, you know, or, or how you use military force and, you know, how we should think about weapons of mass destruction. It also was, it was the first um, top-down planned community in America that became a template for Levittown. Oh, wow, yeah. um, and so, you know, that, that was fascinating to me, the idea that, like, that the suburbs and um, nuclear annihilation were these two twins born in the same womb. That was very weird to me and yeah. interesting. Um, uh, but uh, really, you know, I, I think at its heart for me, it's a show, um, I, I won't call it like a morality tale, but it's a show about secrets and what secrets do um, to families or in relationships mm. uh, and, uh, uh, and what they do to a community and mm. what they do sort of writ large. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of the brilliance of the show is you found your metaphor, you know? This is something we've been talking about from the very beginning of these podcasts th almost three years ago where, you know, the, the Buffy writers, we had a lot of them mm -hmm. early on who said, like, here's how you make good stories. <laughs> find what your show's about, find a metaphor, make sure they go together. Right. That's a good right, story. Right. And I think you've done that. And I think that's a thing that is often lost uh, in contemporary storytelling. Not a question, just a compliment. And now, oh, thank you. No, I mean, look, we, we um, uh, I, uh, I'm a sucker for a metaphor. I also think that the part of the pleasure of um, the place we got to and where we live, particularly in the back half of this season, is that you um, begin with a lot of grandiose ideas, and then there is a moment um, when the thing starts to have a life of its own and mm -hmm. it sort of teaches you what it's about and um uh which is not to say that it's you know I, I, like i've i've i read a lot of interviews with writers uh often you know i used to like comb through those you know paris review uh, art of writing interviews hoping that oh, there was yeah. some um <laughs> secret you know that like it was like philip roth will just explain to me how it works or like laurie moore will say like oh this is how you write prose it's brilliant um don't tell the listeners there's I, no secret that's, that's a they'll stop listening no it, it's at, it's at the last minute of this podcast oh, perfect. so don't stop listening uh you know um uh, so I, I'm not I, sometimes writers will say things like oh well it's, at some point mm -hmm. you just have to get out of the way and listen to the characters and then you transcribe and it's like writing for me is never it's never like taking dictation from some phantom <laughs> character it's always like bruisingly horrible <laughs> exhausting work but there is a moment where um, uh, you know um, it develops its own mm -hmm. headlong momentum um, and uh, and it starts to feel like it's becoming something that's not even quite what you planned for it to be which is you know what you hope yeah absolutely there's definitely that feeling of knowing what's right for the story and knowing what isn't mm -hmm. um, at, at least uh, I'm always curious about those wrong roads or those those uh, side tracks that you get on I mean you were working in television, presumably, when you were working on this pilot in its early stages. I was, yeah. Um, but so you were doing this on your own. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of those wrong avenues that you went by? 
Oh, sweet Jesus. What were they? <laughs> I mean, uh, one thing is, um, you know, I, I wrote a lot of drafts and um, some of those, uh, how do I put this? Um, I hate pilots. I guess let me just start with pilots a, a can be miserable. statement of uh, of just a value <laughs> proposition. I hate pilots. Um, I, I hate the expository work that they do, and I hate their self importance. You know, it feels like a, pilots generally do a lot of chest thumping and they explain to you why the subject matter of the show is worthy yeah. of your time and et cetera. So, um, and yet the, they're um, they are a necessary evil, not just um, from a business standpoint because uh, you want to. Um, convince a network and financiers to invest a lot of money to, to um, let you put on this play that you love, <laughs> you know, um, but also because you need to find an audience and you need to find ways to, to, to teach them what the show is. Um, I wrote a lot of drafts in the early going that felt a lot more like an episode six than like an episode mm. one. Um, and there are aspects of those drafts that, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I love as well as or maybe better than some um, of the writing that eventually went into sure. our first episode. But, um, but that was part of it, was, uh, was um, not fully uh, appreciating yet the work that I had to do in a first episode to make it the uh, episode it was going to be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How did you eventually land on that? story like you have to start somewhere mm-hmm. uh, and as tempting as it is to start with episode six because mm-hmm. you know the story you've done the homework mm-hmm. and these things are these characters are alive in your head mm-hmm. how do you find that starting point well um you know for me in this first episode um uh there's a, a historical fact that became um a, a sort of important piece of the storytelling for our first season um which is true which is that um uh, there were a couple of different uh, uh, competing design models mm-hmm. for this bomb. It's sort of weird to think about it, but it, uh, you know, it was like uh, separate corporate divisions or whatever within this project. Um, and uh, and there's some really fascinating history relating to um, the way that that uh, sort of technical competition played out over the course of about a year, mm-hmm. and that that became sort of a backdrop for our storytelling. And so. Um, uh, Breaking a story that um, fundamentally uh, uh, launched that conflict, which is conflict that plays itself out over the first season, um, that became um, sort of uh, a key to the lock of figuring out what this first episode should be. That makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. Um, I want to I want to talk about kind of what happened next, but mm-hmm. before that, uh, I know you were on uh, Masters of Sex, which is a terrific show. It's great. Uh, Master of Sex. Yeah. And I love um, my old boss at Master of Sex, Michelle yeah. Ashford. Michelle Ashford is unbelievable. That show knows what it's doing. It does. Um, and, and, you know, these shows are, are comparable in many ways. Uh, I was pitching Manhattan to someone by saying, it's like Masters of Sex instead of sex, it's science. <laughs> It is, love or, it. or yeah, I, like I don't know, I like traded uh, like breasts and nudity for like a <laughs> nuclear apocalypse. But exactly. Somehow I, somehow I, did that. I don't know if it's a good trade, but yeah, it's working so far. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and you can always introduce it later. That's that is true. <laughs> Season two, all breasts and nudity. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> um, was Masters your first series work as a professional writer? Uh, it was. I had written pilots before. Mm-hmm. I developed some pilots. Uh, 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 for um, actually uh, mostly for cable mm-hmm. and I had done a little bit of work on uh, a um, an 
network cop show that uh, a friend of mine had created, and uh, he invited me to do some freelance work from oh, okay. New York on it. So, but it was, it was the first experience I'd ever had in a writer's room, and, yeah. and um, first experience on a you know a, um, launching a, a series in its first season. So you must have pretty much learned everything right there. <laughs> I mean, clearly you, you know. knew how to write. You had been writing for yourself, for others, uh, as we all do in fits and starts at the beginning. Yeah, I I um I don't know how to talk about this without sounding like a um like a slobbering idiot, but like <laughs> I I I was terrified actually when sure. I started that job, um in part because I had such huge admiration for Michelle uh, who created the show, and uh, you know I I did what a lot of writers who want to staff do that year, which is that I read literally every new pilot that season, mm-hmm. every pilot that was going to staff, actually even before they'd been picked up. So, yeah. um, you know, there's this sort of weird Darwinian onslaught on the beach where you f- it's not clear who's going to survive and who's not, but you read it all and you think like, ah, oh, well, actually, I mean, this, this, uh, this is a, a terrible show that I would never watch, but um, what can I possibly do to get myself staffed on this show? You know, I mean, um, like I would kill to write for that show that I would never watch for 12 seconds. And, you know, so is that thing. And and um, and then there was one pilot that I read that um, that I loved that just I found riveting, and that was Masters. I mean, I hmm. felt the way about that pilot that I'd felt when I read the Mad Men pilot, when I hmm. read Breaking Bad. It just um, I just knew it had such a clear. I mean, you, you, the way you describe it is exactly right. It, it knew what it was. Like it had such a clear sense of what it was about, and mm-hmm. um, and it was so dramatic and funny. And Michelle's a brilliant dialogue writer, so um, so I, I loved it. And um, and then I couldn't believe my good fortune when I got hired to work on the show. Uh, and then I went to work every day, um, like in a petrified stupor, <laughs> because I. Thought this woman was such a genius, as she is, and uh, Amy Lippins, another writer and executive producer on that show, who's brilliant and created Party of Five, and has written a great many other things, yeah. and is um, just a great person and teacher. And uh, but um, but so I was sort of awed to be in the presence of. of That's those hilarious. Guys. So how was that? You know, after a few weeks, I imagine you start to get used to being in that room. <laughs> um, how was the whole process for you? What did you take from it that you later applied to uh, Manhattan? Uh, a huge amount. Um, and I guess the one thing I would say is that, is that although it felt unfamiliar in some ways and felt really daunting, there were other aspects of it that actually felt really comfortable to me. I, I had been a fiction writer before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a, the it, – actually, in the early parts of my life, I thought I was going to be a professional jazz musician. And then uh, and then I decided that I was going to be a fiction writer, which is like it's, it's neck and neck for which of those <laughs> exactly. is like the, more of a folly. To, oh, know. good. Something to fall back on, yeah. fiction writing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So and – then, and, then, and then from there, I you know, sort of migrated into <laughs> this world. But, uh, but I went to graduate school uh, and studied – uh, fiction writing and got an MFA um, mm-hmm. at the Iowa Writers Workshop and okay. there is a real um, you know there's a culture of uh, of um, talking creatively about your work mm-hmm. um, that's sort of part of the ethos of that program and workshops mm-hmm. in general and so um, in some ways uh, I think I had learned to uh, to um, be part of a collaborative creative enterprise and not to have a thin skin, um, but to um, uh, enter into it with a, um, a positive forward moving energy. And so, you know, so, so um, that was very helpful to me going mm-hmm. into it. Um, 
but I, I learned a huge amount. I mean, part one thing that I learned is that um, uh, there are moments in the process when um, uh, it's very easy to have a panic attack and think <laughs> that um, the world is going to end, but um, the world really doesn't end, no. you know. And it's just, and so that was very helpful to me. It was a good, sort of good lesson uh-huh. in, uh, in what it is to be a, a showrunner. Um, and were, did you guys produce your episodes as well on Masters? Uh, well, um, I, uh, you know, I was a, a reasonably um, junior writer yeah. in that room, um, but I got to do a lot of um, of extracurricular mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, I spent a lot of time on set, and I spent time in oh. post um, cutting episodes, and so um, and Michelle and Amy were um, really great to mm-hmm. me in, in that um, they took the time to teach me a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's I can only imagine that's so important and has been necessary for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we also, we, we wrote uh, at Sony and shot at Sony, and so the stages yeah. were, you know, a 22-second um, jog from our offices, that's which right. meant that, um, you know, we got to spend a lot of time down there uh, watching the magic happen. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about Iowa for a second. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize you, you were there, uh, and it was, of course, a, like, Famous writers workshop and, and uh, has turned out some amazing fiction writers. Um, who who was there? Who were you studying under? And how was the whole process for you? I mean, how did? What I'm really curious about is what kind of a writer did you go in as, mm-hmm. and how did you emerge from it? Um. Uh, well, so first of all, I, I loved it. I had mm-hmm. a great experience, and um, but it was in its way a different experience from the one that I thought I was going to have um, uh, I'd, I'd heard there's sort of mythology about uh, about the Iowa Writers Workshop yeah. which is among other things um, at least what I had heard um, is that it is this like incredibly cutthroat environment where um, uh, there's a sense that like success in the world of fiction is a zero sum game and everybody cuts each other to ribbons and uh, and is you know uh, merciless in the room and um, and so I, what I thought was that it would be a great experience I would learn a huge amount from these sort of great Olympian figures of American letters, mm-hmm. uh, and it would be great in spite of the other students there. Um, and that wound up being, and in spite of Iowa City, which I thought was going to be like a desert wasteland, <laughs> um, that, that wound up being um, almost 180 degrees from my experience, which is not wow. to say I didn't have great teachers. I did, but, um, but mostly I just learned a huge amount from m- my classmates, who, you know, many of whom are my closest friends still. Um, mm-hmm. I met my wife there. She was a classmate oh. of mine. Uh, another writer on our show was a classmate of mine. Um, uh, so the the thing that was really cool for me was um, it was just a, a chance to spend two years uh, insulated from all of the economic realities that make it impossible for anyone to write fiction in the world, because Iowa City is, among yeah. other things, like a really cheap place to live, <laughs> and if you have a teaching gig, you can... Um, uh, you know, you can spend all your time reading and writing and thinking about writing and arguing about writing. It's inc- it's, the greatest, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's inc- it was like a, I, I it was like I had found a way to crawl back into the womb, and I wanted to stay there forever, which a lot of people do. There are people who just sort yes, of, of course. never leave. Um, and eventually, my wife almost had to surgically extract me. From <laughs> um, but. Uh, it, but, but, which is not to say I did have great teachers I studied mm-hmm. with um, the, there's a guy named Frank Conroy who was mm-hmm. the director of that program for many years who passed away just a couple of years after yeah. he left and I studied with him and he was incredible Ethan Kanan who's a brilliant uh, novelist and yeah. story writer was a teacher and friend Elizabeth McCracken and mm-hmm. Marilyn Robinson Edward Carey really a lot of ZZ Packer really wonderful um, 
teachers. And, and as for how my writing changed, um, I think that I came to Iowa somebody who, you know, sort of like a crow that is attracted to shiny objects. You know, I loved glittering sentences. That was the thing mm-hmm. for me. And all of the writers... I loved and admired most. They were stylists, you know, mm-hmm. and I still love them. I still love Nabokov. I still love Don DeLillo. I, you know, I love, um, I love a perfectly pitched um, sentence or metaphor. But, um, but that was a time where, like, I couldn't. You, you couldn't have like force-fed me Alice Munro stories with a gavage because I thought that they would just, they just was such a plainness to the sentences. And so part of the deal was I just came to care a lot more about structure and. Um, hmm and character and story and I'm sure there are critics of the workshop ethos who would say that that means that like my voice got homogenized or something like that but the truth is I think I just became um, a somewhat more um, sensitive reader and and sensitive writer. That's really interesting and I think it's, uh, that journey is always instructive I think uh, especially for young writers who think they know exactly how they write you know, well, that's I feel the like thing it's a too. Process, I mean, right? I was a young idiot. You know, I got there, and 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 I, th- I don't think there's anyone who who doesn't arrive at Iowa with at least this like sort of passing fantasy that on the first day someone's going to read your work and say like, "Well, my God, you don't belong here. You belong in front of the Nobel Committee." You know, um, uh, but you, you learn a lot, and there are moments where that are sort of difficult for the ego. But um, but uh, but no, it was a, it was. Amazing. I loved it. That's really cool. Uh, let me ask you this, and if it is too personal, you, we can take this out. But your wife is a writer yeah. as well. Yep. Uh, is she a prose writer? She's a prose writer. Uh, uh, she was a fiction writer, and then she was a journalist. She worked um, at The New Yorker when we lived in New York, and um, now she's a writer on our show. And oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Okay, now this is a whole other set of questions. Yeah, let's I do was it. going to ask. Okay. Yep. Uh, my wife is not in the industry. Okay. And um, and I've talked to other people in the same situation where writers can be difficult. Oh, miserable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it took some time for her to learn that which, about me. Which, which kind of difficult writer are you? Um, the not pay attention kind. Uh, <laughs> the not... off in my own world kind. Oh, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> But but here you are, yeah. two of you are yeah. writers. Yeah. So um, we're each off in our own separate world. This is what I'm wondering about. Uh, now look, you've yeah. got a kid now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It changes things. You can if you're sure. off in your own world, like uh, you know, your child could uh, you know, uh, like a, swallow something he's not supposed to swallow. <laughs> exactly. so, you, so, so there's a new kind of hazard to being off in your own world. But there's I mean, you also like you can't always control it and sometimes you're especially in television, you're on a schedule and you need to yes. be in that space where you can write whatever that means to you physical or mental um you're both on a show and you're both on the same show so you have kind of the same schedule although i imagine you're a bit busier yeah it um how do you maintain the relationship is what i'm asking <laughs> i all i will tell you is i am so glad that my wife is not here to answer that question i'd be <laughs> terrified um well it's, I, look, it's very hard and i um will not pretend to be someone who um uh, is particularly good at leaving work at home. Yeah, um, which I think uh, it's hard for all of us. Yeah, I mean, this no, is part of the is, job. Is, like, is it comes we're, home. We are. Yeah, we're. We're. Um, 
many of us are uh, neurotic and obsessive creatures by nature, and it just, you know, uh, she, I think, is less so than I am and is better adjusted and has found a way to live in the world. Um, but I, but, but it's true. I mean, I say sometimes that, like, ever since I started working on this project, it's like I've sort of had dual citizenship, and I spend, like, some of my time in this world, and then I spend some of my time in 1943 thinking about, you know, the end of the, the, end of the world, you know, and, that, and that's like a... That's a hard thing when you have a partner um, who only lives in one of those worlds, yeah. you know. Um, uh, what I can say is that um, it's been uh, great for me and I think great for her that she's involved with this project. Too. And for, first of all, she had been involved from the beginning. Mm-hmm. She's my first reader. She's, um, she's a sounding board. And, yeah. so that, and that was part of the sort of... DNA of our relationship from you know the beginnings of our friendship when we were classmates at Iowa and, and we're had a sort of mutual admiration society because we liked each other's work um, <laughs> but uh, but the truth is um, Manhattan would be inflicted upon her 24 hours a day whether she was working on it or not and um, it's like I think it's at least my great good fortune that she's working on it too because um, not only is she more tolerant when I want to talk about it but um, but then she um, writes brilliantly for it, which makes my job easier. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, that's that's that is very lucky for both of you, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a <laughs> hard it's a it is incredible that anyone would suffer a relationship with a writer. Um, <laughs> let's definitely put that out there. <laughs> let's just yeah, let's just yeah, they deserve some sort of like an ice cream cake or something. Exactly. Um, before we pick back up on the Manhattan journey, yeah. were you a TV watcher? Were you a TV fan as a kid, as an impressionable young person, as a young writer? Yeah, I was. Uh, my parents um, tried to insulate me from TV um, to the best of their ability when I was pretty little and so we had a tv but like there were very complicated rules about when we were allowed to turn it on and when we were allowed to watch um until they separated when i was about 10 and then it was this thing that happens which is that um your parents will um uh like try to assuage this this (laughs) or right the wrong in any way they can so so tv became like that that was my that was my settlement package basically and i you know i just i freebased a lot of tv um after that, um, I loved it. I, yeah, I loved TV. I mean, what was I, the stuff you were? What do you think was impressionable to you? Well, I can tell you, like the big, the thing, the moment where TV became <clears throat> something. How old would I have been? Um, I was a huge Twin Peaks fan during its initial run. Like for a long uh, time, I wouldn't go anywhere. Like when I would, like go, uh, you know, uh, like travel someplace or wh- whatever, without this, um, like a, a bag full of old VHS tapes because oh, I taped them God. all. Like by episode two or three. <laughs> I was taping them all live, and you know they had all the. There was like this bad quality old VHS, yeah. and with all the you know ABC commercials for canned soup and whatever. <laughs> um, but it just it. Um, I I was completely obsessed and besotted uh, with Twin Peaks when it was on. Fantastic. That was really the first for me. That's ridiculous. It was um, ridiculous. It was truly. It was truly ridiculous. But that's. I, it also makes a lot of sense. I mean, look at what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a there's a. Um, there, there are. Uh, my, my wife is from Missoula, Montana, which is one of the greatest towns on the planet. And um, uh, there are these bumper stickers you see in um, Missoula. Sometimes that say "Keep Missoula Weird," mm-hmm. and that was sort of like a um, that was like a mantra for me at times when we were thinking about this season, which is "Keep Manhattan Weird." Mm-hmm. Remember that um, that uh, 
you know, this is not, uh, I love Band of Brothers, but this wasn't Band of Brothers that we were making. I mean, there was an inherent peculiarity to the, and sort of, um, there's something very unsettling about the, the, the world and the culture of our show, what mm-hmm. it is to live in a town of secrets where uh, physicists are, you, you know, unlocking the secrets of the universe to create this thing that, um, you know, many of them were afraid that it was going to ignite the atmosphere and destroy the world when they tested the first bomb. So, so, um, we did our best to keep Manhattan weird. And it, it absolutely works. I mean, it feels like you walk a very specific line uh, in that regard. Uh, there must be conversations about how far to push things. I mean, tonally, it's an interesting show because, like I said, you get to play the drama, you mm-hmm. get to play comedy, you get mm-hmm. to play soap opera, you get mm-hmm. to play this neat almost science fiction because mm-hmm. <laughs> to them it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um are there are there conversations about moving that tone around and how far you can push any one of these things? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, uh, put it this way: I think that like pornography, like we know it when we see it. Like mm-hmm. we know, like there aren't a set of hard and fast rules for us, but there are moments. You know, this past week's episode straddles some very peculiar tonal shifts. I mean, there is this, as you say, this sort of goofball drug <laughs> comedy that plays itself out. Um, there uh, is some pretty um, dark and complicated stuff that happens, uh, you know, uh, in this in Rachel Brosnan, Abby's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and There's even what husband. appears to be a crime story there going is, on. And it's, yeah, was a, which is, which is, that, was a, that was an interesting experiment for us, too. I mean, it, it feels like it... Um, it, it moves around and there's this very I mean to me really beautifully directed and acted and scored um, final sequence that involves Olivia Williams it's very yeah. it kind of you know there's no dialogue it just goes on for quite a long time and involves some um, very peculiar events um, and I uh, I loved this I mean it, it, it obviously you work on episodes and the cuts for a while but from the first cut that I saw this hmm. episode I, I I knew that it um, it felt um it felt like it um, moved around tonally more than a lot of our episodes had done in a way that for me was very pleasing. Um, yeah. Not that every episode will, will um, you know, contain those multitudes, but um, it sort of taught us something about what the show could be. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like a kind of mission statement, but also a kind of coming together of the previous, however many it's been, nine, ten episodes. Yeah, I, I think, I, I, I hope people feel that way. I mean, you know, the... the um, uh, the thing is, the subject matter itself, um, uh, the Manhattan Project, it's so um, it's so big and complicated, um, and uh, it, it would be and is very easy to fall into a mode that feels very um, didactic uh, uh, or that sort of um, emphasizes the grand historical weightiness of the yeah. subject matter. And of course, it is grand historically weighty subject matter, but um, but. Uh, the modes of storytelling um, that uh, that emphasize the grand historically important subject matter of grand historically important subject matter um, <laughs> get pretty tedious to me, and so um, so it's felt great when we um, uh, kind of enter into other modes. Yeah, I mean, I think that that also comes down to how you choose to push the story forward. I mean, you are dealing with real events; it has a real beginning and a real end. You know, that can be mm-hmm. cloudy, but whatever. Right. Um, and, and I think you guys must talk a lot about 
how to move this story, what part of this story to mm-hmm. tell the, both the personal stories and the scientific discovery story. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, it, look, like it's not a work of speculative science fiction where, um, you know, uh, 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 the Nazis are going to win the war or, you know, uh, um, or the bomb isn't going to work. Um, that said, almost every episode I turn to my wife when they're, like, getting ready to test a bomb or something and go, this is when he turns into the Hulk. <laughs> this is going to be it. Because it, it makes me laugh every time. You know what? It does not make her laugh every time. I, I got to tell you, <laughs> it, 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 would, it would really surprise some audiences and might, um, <laughs> it, it might please some executives. I don't know. Sure. Well, maybe capture a larger audience. Anyway, I'm sorry to uh, but, um, but, you know, but yeah, it's a very interesting thing because we're working within um, some parameters that are pretty well defined. Um, you know, and so the first... In a way, I think the first choice that we um, made in thinking about the season and, um, uh, you know, this is part of the crazy hubris of this business. But to sell the show, I, I, you know, I had this meeting where we sat down and I walked the network through what seven seasons of this show would look like, you know, what would be happening in season four. And, um, and of course, uh, in success, you hope that you sort of throw that away and, and, and. Um, and surprise yourself, but but um, but the first choice was you know just what is the piece of history that we're mm-hmm. exploring? You know where where does the season begin and where does it end? And then from there, um, uh, the question was how do we let it be a character story and not a um, mm-hmm. a docudrama or or not a um, science problem of the week show, which was never the show that we were interested in, in writing. Um, so I think the the place uh, for me that we um, arrive at midway through the season um, and I, I think it necessarily takes some time to get there because you have to teach the audience about who the characters are and let them you know, come to life but is a place where uh, the characters' stories um, sort of turn the levers of history mm. and not vice versa, you know, yeah. not a sense that they are sort of um, living in the margins of history That feels like um, and I, I think I had a similar conversation with Michelle about this on Masters that, you know how do you make the characters tell the story and not be beholden, not right. make it a docu-series? I think right. that's, that's really smart. Um, let's, let's go back and talk a little nuts and bolts here. Um, when you did go in to pitch, uh, first of all, when did Shlami get involved? Uh, I, I think it was about two years ago. Um, I, at some point recently I was um, sitting down in an editing bay with um, Tommy and the woman who... Uh, uh, runs his company with him, um, uh, Julie DeJoy, who's a producer mm-hmm. on our show. Um, and like we went back through old emails to figure <laughs> it out. It was sort of like like when was our first date? Uh, you know, yeah. but but, uh, but I think it was about two years ago. Yeah. Um, and and did the project change in that time? What got him interested? Uh, was it just were you pitching to production companies? How did it work? Um, it kind of was what it was going to be by then. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he read a draft, and you know the the draft changed a bit um, between the day when he read something and you know the day when we uh, started shooting it. Um, sure. Uh, a year and a half later, but uh, but it had kind of become itself by then, mm-hmm. and so really it was a process of um, yeah of, of of figuring out who our partners were going to be, and so we uh, we were um, put in touch with. Uh, uh, David Ellison and Dana Goldberg at uh, Skydance, which mm-hmm. you know is a company mostly known for making like giant tentpole movies, yeah. like, sort of big event movies, like uh, you know the Star Trek movies and Mission Impossible movies. Um, and they really, really loved this 
show and wanted to make the show mm. and make it their first foray into TV, which in some ways felt like a funny fit for them. But, you know, their first movie or among their first movies was True Grit, you know, which is a, um, in some ways a different tonally from this this other stuff they're doing. And, yeah. and they really loved it. And, and so um, we partnered up with them and then uh, Lionsgate got involved. And, uh, and then it was like a process of kind of running around and doing our dog and pony show and talking to networks. Yeah, so when it came time to go to networks, uh, what did those pitches look like? Did you send the script ahead? Did you hold the script back? Did you go in and pitch I think what the we series? did for the most work? part is we, um, I think uh, if I'm rem- remembering right, we had a sort of shortish meeting where we went in and talked a little bit about, you know, who we were and what the show was and then le- and then left them with the script mm-hmm. and then had follow-up meetings where we said, you know, here's here's the show and right. do you have here's what the series and, would be, you know, and yeah, and the great advantage was that having spent 5 years thinking about this show, um I, like I was happy to talk about it I- I- until everyone else in the room was sick of hearing about <laughs> it. So it was um um but yeah, it, I mean, that's a very weird thing about this business, which is, for the most part, um, you know, most of my friends are writers, um, but uh, uh, writers are not salesmen. You know, it's um, often the skills that make a writer good at his job or her job are not the same skills that would naturally um, make you a person who should be, um, you know, hawking a series to um, a bunch of financiers and um, network executives. And yeah, it's an odd. It's an odd skill set that I think um, uh, one adapts or has to adapt or yeah. finds so, it one So how did you adapt? Or, what was your pitching style? Uh, <laughs> I, I wish I had like a good two-word. No, I, 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 um, here's the deal. Uh, I, the great advantage that I had in this case is that I really, really love this show and mm-hmm. and love this world of the show i love the characters and i believe in it a great deal and so um so i, I think that was uh an asset you know it was a thing Absolutely. that um, you can that, talk that, about that, it passionately yeah, yeah yeah i mean i i think that uh <clears throat> i've met writers who have different styles of pitching and um one thing that i can say is that you know and people will, will um talk very crassly about what the pitching process is like and um, and what kind of fixations uh, 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 the networks have in a given year. You know, there'll be the years where, like, they hear a, a bajillion pitches about, uh, about uh, vampires or about angels or about, uh, you know, uh, police sketch artists or I don't, I don't know, you know. Um, but the truth is I think that people who get involved in this business – on the network end and the studio end as well as writers do it for the most part because they love stories and they mm-hmm. want to be um, a part of um, giving birth to something that is meaningful. And so um, I think people care when you care about something. For sure. Know? People respond to that. Um, so eventually you did have to pitch what would what would the first year be? What would seven seasons be right. of this? Um, I'm always curious to hear about you know, you, you guys come in with these plans and then the reality of making the TV show happens and you have six, seven other writers who are all smart and bring their own points of view to it. Uh, how quickly did your season one plans go off the rails? They, um, I actually should look back and see exactly um, how much of the story that I'd planned to tell in that season we wound up telling. Um, I, I would... Uh, I, I, I will I will avoid saying that it went off the rails. I think I think what it did Which was Which can be a positive thing. It, it can be. We off roaded a little bit. Yeah. Um but but you know, I think what we um 
um, very honestly, the place where we wound up is um, more interesting in of some course. ways than the, than than the place where I th- I thought we would wind up. And part of the deal, I think, is just a lesson in what TV is and the nature of the business is that um, it is sort of a business of best laid plans. Where where um, I mean, it's very different from writing fiction in that um, uh, when TV is any good and um, one thing that my work in this business has taught me is to have great admiration for anything that is good because it seems almost impossible that this process would produce anything that was ever any good. (laughs) Um, But what it requires is um, the investment of huge talents and effort and care and passion on the part of hundreds of people, you know, um, working in concert and all making the same movie in their head, you know, and and believing in the same thing. Um, And there are things that I think you can do to set a culture that um, help uh, make that, um, uh, uh, you know, more uh, of a possibility than it it might be otherwise. But... um, but it's kind of a, a miracle, and so um, a lesson was really listening to the project and trying to be aware of what the talents were that everybody else around me brought to the table. And mm-hmm. so you learn very quickly um, to write for your actors. I mean, we have an incredible cast, and it's such a gift to write for them. But they sort of teach you who the characters are, and sure. um, you find energy between characters that um, you never imagined, and they suggest storylines that um, didn't exist in your head at all. And so. Um, so that was, in a way, the coolest part of this season for me was um, having the show teach me what it was mm-hmm. over time. That, that, that sounds so like new agey, like I'm sitting at home with a crystal, which, <laughs> I, which I am, by the way. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, but that is, I mean, I absolutely agree. That is immensely gratifying uh, when the collaboration is working in that way. Um, can you point to some of the specifics for the characters showing you and the writers the show? Yeah, so um, uh, there's some story that's playing itself out now um, that involves uh, uh, Charlie, who's this young physicist played by Ash uh, Zuckerman, um, uh, and uh, Helen, who's a young uh, female physicist, really the only female physicist in the world of the show in this first season. Um, uh, And they have a very sort of complicated uh, entanglement over the course of this season, um, and to a certain extent, uh, you know, the foundation for it was laid in, in the writing of our second episode. But there was a scene that, that um, Ash and, and Katja Herbers, who plays Helen, played together that was um, just riveting. I mean, I remember watching it at the monitors while we were shooting it. And it just – there was, a, to me, a really fascinating energy between the two hmm. of them. And it just um, – it suggested horizons for us that um, had been really interesting and fruitful to um, – to uh, explore, um, but but you know to a certain extent, um, I think every character began to change once um, once they were cast. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my sense of who Frank Winter is is um, fundamentally informed by um, John Benjamin Hickey's incredibly brilliant performance in this life that he's invested in, hmm. in him. Um, really, the only 
character who kind of didn't change for me is uh, Olivia Williams' character just because um, I wrote this role <laughs> imagining Olivia Williams uh, awesome. uh, playing her. So it was like that. That was like the, <laughs> right. the greatest and most surreal and odd moment of this you know, entire surreal process of having this show um, take on the life it's taken mm-hmm. was, was when uh, Olivia signed on to play oh, that's the amazing. role that I'd written for. And it feels like, I mean, even in, especially in those first couple of episodes where that makes so much sense. I mean, I feel like you were writing for an actor who could do anything, mm-hmm. you know, and she pulls off lots of different levels in even in one scene or two scenes, but over the course of a few episodes. Yeah, really she's, cool. just, she's, she's incredibly brilliant. I think part of the deal is that she, um, um, she has a kind of wit and uh, brilliance and gravitas, but also vulnerability. That, like, um, all, all of that, um, it's, that's not performance. I mean, she is an incredibly brilliant um, force of, of her own, and, and, um, and so um, uh, it's easy to write for her in that way. That's so cool. Um, I did want to ask about casting Hickey as well, yeah. because when he came on the screen, I, I feel like I've seen him as a supporting character for his whole career, that I did not expect him to be the lead of the show. Yeah, he well he um he we um considered a lot of people, we read people for this sure. role. Um uh he was a name very early in the process that I was excited about cuz he had always um I just was always fascinated by him. I think mm-hmm. he's such a complicated and soulful actor and um and uh and I think for this role in particular um you know he plays a kind of conflictedness in a really interesting way and he also plays great intelligence to me i mean he, he felt like someone who could be a, a, a great mind um uh but initially uh, my memory is he read the script and said oh, i love it but he passed and he said you know i'm kind of interested in doing a comedy right now he's a fantastic comic actor um and then at some point you know a, a little ways down the line he uh he read it again, and he read the second script, and he came in and talked to us. And it just um, when we sat down with him, I just I knew that he was this guy. And you know, he taught me things about this character too. I mean, there were aspects of John that um, I hadn't seen hmm. in Frank on the page. Um, you know, there's a kind of restlessness to John. He's sort of um, always in motion. There's a kind of energy that he has that was a little different from the Frank that I'd pictured. But um, but it's almost like uh, it's almost impossible for me to connect now with my idea of who the character was pre-John because he sure. has come to um, define him, you know, really profoundly. Absolutely. Me. That's so great. I mean, it feels, it does feel like you guys found the right people for each of these roles. The only other one I want to ask about, and you just said her name and I forget because it's foreign, who, uh, the character, the actress Kacha. who plays Helen. Yeah. yeah. Is this her first American TV? It is. And, and, uh, uh, this is a left field choice. <laughs> yeah. She, well, in the character, um, I should say was written initially as an American woman. And, um, and we knew that we wanted someone really particular, um, for this role. I mean, one thing in, in LA, you know, you, or casting a role of a genius and you get a lot of people who just like put on some chunky glasses <laughs> and then suddenly they're a genius. But, um, but you know, physicists uh, and mathematicians and you know, scientists um, have a very particular energy. They often have a, um, they socialize in a really particular way. They don't, um, they don't fit the mold. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we knew it was going to be challenging to find the right person for this role. Um, Jeannie Backrack, who's our, um, uh, uh, casting director uh, introduced 
uh, Katja to us, and we watched some tape of her. She'd put herself on tape, and we all just um, we just were kind of mesmerized. And she got on a plane. She flew out to LA the next day and read for us. And you know, the role was hers immediately. She just. Wow. Um, I, I, I think she's really brilliant, and she um, she has a, has a huge career at yeah. home and is very well known in Europe. But yeah. um, we're really lucky to get that, her. On that's the show. wild. Um, let me just ask a few nuts and boltsy questions, and we'll we'll get you home to your family. Um, so you guys got the order from WGN for the full first season. We did. Right? Yeah. Um, how did production work? How did you put your room together? Uh, are you show running? I assume you are. And do you have a co-show runner? Is I am. No, it's just it's well. I mean, Tommy. Uh, I, I I don't know how the it's you know it's not like I have a, like a bronze plaque on my right. door or anything. But you know, Tommy has been my partner in this project and um, and had a really clear vision um, for <clears throat> the production aspects of the show <clears throat> and how he wanted to set it up. And part of it was that, um, and it was part of the challenge I think of of peddling this show is it's not an easy show to produce. I mean, period um, never is. But, uh, uh, you know, take Mad Men. um, That's a show whose first season, at least, takes place almost uh, entirely inside. And so you can shoot it on stages and and that actually feels great and feels really appropriate to the show. You know, there's a kind of claustrophobia that's sort of part of the... But it's practical to that show. But yeah, exactly. Um, For us, it never would have been possible, you know, because this was not just a show that took place in front of blackboards or um, at home around kitchen tables. I mean, part of the whole bizarro reality of the Manhattan Project was that it was set in this austere, beautiful kind of sci-fi landscape of New Mexico. Um... Uh, so what Tommy from the beginning proposed was that we basically do what the army did, which is build yeah. a town and go and shoot in it and have it be totally um, a town that consists of practical sets, you know, real um, four-walled buildings where, uh, you know, if the director and the actors decide that um, they should, um, you know, go outside midway through the scene, we can do it, you know, where we're not sort That's of um, constrained in the way that you are when you're shooting on a soundstage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and is it, it's here in California, yes? No, we, we shoot in New Mexico. Oh, do you? We, yeah. We, no um, kidding. We have this um, incredible set. We have a couple locations we shoot on, but the sort of principle, the hub mm-hmm. of it is um, this 11-acre former wow. 1940s-era um, uh, military hospital, um, which had been defunct, and it was mm-hmm. full of trash and fenced off. It was, abuts this um, uh, this uh, school in Santa Fe, and... Uh, they were kind enough to school to give us a use of this land, and so wow. we went in and rehabbed it and turned it into, you know, it's, it's like a 1943 theme park. You walk around and, you, you know, you, you, uh, you feel like you have um, <laughs> fallen through some kind of time warp. That is so neat. Um, do you send your writers to set? Uh, s- not as a sort of um, hard and fast rule or matter mm. of course, but, um, uh, you know, uh, the writing was somewhat insulated from the production yeah, uh, of our show, that. and so um, so a few writers were on set. But okay. Uh, and how many? How big was the staff? And where did you find them? It sounds like you knew at least a handful before. I did. Cool. Um, we uh, at various points, um, you know, it sort of the sh- staff uh, kind of shifted a mm-hmm. bit over time. But but um, I think there were eight writers in all, and um, uh, a handful of them I did. No, um, which is great, uh, including the guy who gave me my first job in TV. Uh, it's a guy named Dusty Thomason, who's an executive producer on our show, and a great old friend of mine and a really brilliant writer. And um, and he, too, 
you know, if my wife was the first reader of the first draft of Manhattan, he was the second. And so he'd been sort of part of the gestation of this thing forever. That's amazing. Um, And then I did what you do in this process, which is you just read a huge amount. You get sort of um, uh, bombarded with scripts and you uh, read through them. And and sometimes it's very clear that something is a bad fit or very clear that someone is um, the person you've been waiting your whole life to read. (laughs) And then there's a lot that sort of falls in somewhere in a... Were, zone between them. Was there stuff that you responded to beyond high quality writing in these scripts? <clears throat> you know, um, sure, of course. You know, I I, I, uh, I read for a handful of things when I'm when I'm um, when I'm reading uh, somebody's work in that way. You know, not just for pleasure, but mm-hmm. to try to figure out if somebody's going to be a good match for particularly for this show and um i mean the essential thing is which is like the just as you say it's high quality writing it's like you know there's writing that just feels alive on the page um uh in the right way i mean our show uh has some very peculiar um things about it i mean it's it's uh it has uh there's a lot of it's very content heavy you know Mm -hmm. it's very dense and so there's a lot of research that's involved um but it's a family show and a character show too and so um uh, so, you know, um, uh, one thing that, that I just looked for is writers who felt, um, at home in different worlds, you know, at home and not necessarily somebody who has sort of one trick that is the thing that they do, but people who seem to sure. have a sort of commodious voice. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, uh, just before we wrap up, so the finale is when? You just locked it. Congratulations. Thank you. It's very <laughs> That's exciting. It must be very, very satisfying. Uh, I have to say, and I will say this too, which is the thing that I think is the way TV is supposed to work, but it doesn't always work. I Legitimately, it's like we hit this stride where every episode um, we will lock. I'll say like, that one is my favorite one. And, <laughs> and I think they just get better and better until the finale. But And, uh, and I'm very proud of the finale. But uh, it airs, I, I guess, episode 10 airs this Sunday. So it will air uh, three weeks from this Sunday. Okay, so end of October. Yeah, I don't know. I don't uh, have a calendar. It'll be on. Me, but we'll we'll put it in the description for the podcast. <laughs> Thank, you. Um, Thank you. And people, I hope people will watch it. I mean, and before yeah, we are on Hulu and iTunes too. Oh, good. So or, people can catch up to the party. Too. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, what are you watching on television oh, now? You man. have some time. You can I actually do have watch time. On television. I do have time. It's so. It's actually. I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the greatest horrors of this last year, which I shouldn't say it was a, it was a fantastic year, but there were a couple of horrors. One of them is I watched like no TV and I to say nothing for the fact that like the last time I cracked a novel was so long ago that, you know, I, I my wife doesn't respect me anymore. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but now I'm catching up. So of course, um, masters of sex is like my first go-to It's a very weird thing. It's sort of, it's a little bit like, um, like, uh, like running into someone that you used to date on the street and being like, oh, God, she looks great. Yeah, and doing so like, well without me. Yeah, I know. Like how to, um, but anyway, but I think it's been really brilliant. Yeah. And um, and uh, the writing and the performance, everything is so great. Um, uh, the Honorable Woman on Sundance. I'm a huge... I have not seen that. What? Yeah, I know. Sweet Jesus. I don't even know if what I What kind of a podcast Sundance. is this? <laughs> uh, man, but like you, uh, but surely you watched like Top of the Lake when it was on, right? I did. Or, okay, yes. Top of the Lake. And it's, you know, Sundance is kind of killing it. And uh, I think The Honorable Woman is really brilliant. Um, and it's just okay. whatever it is, a six-parter. Uh, yeah, and you know, the Good Wife just came back. I'm a big Good Good Wife fan. Um, that's that's been sort of my um, my go-to. Oh, and uh, you know, I like The Leftovers very much. I was a big. Leftovers. And I forgot to ask, do you have another pilot going on? 
Uh, I do. Uh, I do, weirdly. Yeah. I, so um, I co-wrote so weird. something. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's... It, anyway, it, uh, I'd actually written it um, after Manhattan, but um, before I went to work on Masters of Sex, I co-wrote oh, wow. a pilot uh, with a guy named Sam Baum, who is a, um, a very prolific uh, t- <laughs> and brilliant TV um, uh, writer and producer. Um, uh, and it is a pilot for Amazon that is about the... Uh, oh, right. About gun culture and the uh, gun business. Wow. Very, very um, and what's what's the status with it? Is it like that Amazon process of making the pilot and then waiting to hear? Yeah. So um, production just wrapped about a week ago, cool. and uh, so we shall see. I'm, I'm very excited to see a, a cut of it. Um, and how how was Amazon to work with? Well, um, uh, full disclosure is that because the process of mm-hmm. its um, kind of uh, coming to life coincided with the um, the sort of lion's share of the work on this first season. I've been a bit of a um, uh, absentee uh, yeah. partner to Sam Baum in this, uh, you know, over the last few months. Um, but uh, everything that I understand through him and the experiences that I've had with um, uh, the folks over there has been fantastic. It's Good. been great. Good to hear. Well, we'll yeah. look forward to it, and uh, we'll get Sam on when, when that shows. You absolutely <laughs> should. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Sam. Hey, this was thanks a pleasure. so much, Ben. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 